Throughout my career, I've been called a hustler. And each time, it raises the hair up on the back of my neck. For some reason, I take great exception. I have no idea why. Might have come from reading Death of a Salesman in high school, or those horrible boiler room movies like Glengarry Glen Ross or Wall Street. But it also might be my ancestry. See, the word Chapman is an English name that identifies a career. Like Baker is a baker or Smith for blacksmith. In our case, our name comes from Cheap Man. My ancestors were peddlers of cheap goods. And I guess when I think about it, the apple hasn't fallen that far from the tree. When I was in my late teens, in the trunk of my car, you'd find it packed with hair dryers and gym socks and the latest inventions, things like digital calculators and watches. Often had a box of gold neck chains with pendants. I bought all of this from the wholesalers in Montreal and then peddled them to the people I knew. As a family, we didn't have a lot of money. And the Ford Maverick that I drove was the first car our family owned. I needed gas and I wanted to do my part to help at home. Thursday nights was a special night. I got to take my mom grocery shopping. And I remember one night, she's telling me that the washing machine had broken. She had no money to replace it. And a family of six creates a lot of dirty laundry. Proudest moment of my life was my ability to pull $375 out of my bank account so she could buy a new one. Having money to draw upon, to build from, has always been important to me. So call me a hustler if you must, but I prefer to see my wiring as being opportunistic. And the one lesson I've learned, and might be an important lesson for you, is to focus on chasing the opportunity or the idea, not the pot of gold. Over my lifetime, I've learned that true and lasting reward is when you find a place where you're intellectually enriched and emotionally stimulated. When you're in that place, rewards will follow. It might be job security or a job advancement. Or as an entrepreneur, when you have shining eyes and you're excited and energized, I promise you, you'll find the capital and markets you need. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. First of all, as an entrepreneur, you need to learn how to take criticism. I'm going to make a ton of money because this is the future, and you guys need to get your heads out of the sand. I'll sum up my perspective on it. It's very cool. It's a very good idea. You weren't ready to go to market. You went to market. You're gutsy because you came out and you took a gigantic risk. Tried to give you what I thought was a really fair offer. Sorry, but I'm out. My guest today is Arlene Dickinson. Many of you will know her as the matriarch, the quarterback on Dragon's Den. I knew her before television days as a gifted entrepreneur with a spirit and competitive drive. Arlene Dickinson is what defines my show, Ordinary Who Do Extraordinary. Arlene is humanity at its best. She's caring and courageous, fearless, but not afraid to admit her fears. She is empathetic, and competitive and unabashed and unashamed when it comes to promoting what she believes in, which includes women-led businesses, entrepreneurs, not-for-profits, and charities that work to erase the disadvantage. Arlene is also an entrepreneur, best-selling author, and the host of one of my favorite podcasts, Reinvention. Arlene, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thanks, Tony. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Normally when I do this show, I kind of let it flow, but I'm doing something very different. I'm going to take your three books that you've written over the last 10 years, Persuasion in 2011, All In in 2013, and your latest Reinvention in 2019 to kind of build the lessons that I hope you can offer the people that are listening. I will take one deviation though. Before we get into where you first started writing books, 
I think everybody's a little bit curious to know Arlene Dickinson as a child before she became this ferocious entrepreneur. Tell me a little bit about your background. Immigrant to Canada. We came to Canada from South Africa when I was not quite three years old, Tony, and and came here with literally nothing. I had to sell what we did have in South Africa in order to emigrate to this country. My childhood was uh, a mixed bag of, you know, being an immigrant in a, in a country in a culture that we didn't quite understand in a, in a land we didn't quite understand and kind of navigating through that and going through these the challenges of poverty and the challenges of not fitting in. Started school when I was a little bit, you know, young, five years old. I accelerated a year and that always put me at two years younger than everybody else. So I found that I was constantly dealing with people more mature than I was um, and also feeling again, like I didn't fit in very, very much an introvert uh, as a kid, very much, um, you know, feeling a little, little bit like I didn't belong. And then also just kind of sticking to my, my books. Like I was, I was book driven. I read, read voraciously. I, that's all I did was read. You know, I was the kid that probably very few people would remember from school. <laughs> like, I think I was voted in my high school yearbook, you know, and they say, you know, most likely to be the president or most likely to go out and run the world. Or I think they said in mine, I was most likely to become a candlestick maker. <laughs> <laughs> well, I imagine how many people from that high school now talk about dating you and hanging out with you. And I knew Arlene and all this other stuff. You know, my wife was from South Africa and she, uh, she immigrated here and she describes her time in Canada by winters. I've been here 32 winters because she's never quite come to terms with the weather here. Sure, my mom too. I want to fast forward to age 31. I, I listened to an interview, which was so raw. And you described yourself as stranded, recently divorced, clutching a high school diploma, no savings, and no clue how to feed your four young children. That must've been a tough place to be. It was a really hard place to be. And I, I guess, you know, people ask me how I did it. And I always say, you know, you do what you have to do. It's not like you have choices. You don't sit there and say, well, I don't, you know, I'm not going to go and try and put food on the table today. You have to put food on the table today. So I think that I was overwhelmed, but I also had, uh, I was very fortunate in that my father in particular had instilled in me the sense of belief that I was responsible for myself and that it was up to me to change anything. If I didn't like what was happening in my life, that it was up to me to change it into circumstances that were better. And he always said to me that society didn't owe me anything, but that I owed society everything. In other words, you know, we're part of a community and we have to give back and we can't expect people to take care of us um, if we are able, if we're capable and able. And he always said, if you have two hands and a head, you get out there and work. <laughs> Great lessons in life. But it was curious that you only had your high school diploma. It sounds like your dad's wiring you for greatness. Why stop there? When I was 13, my parents got divorced and we came from a fairly dysfunctional family. There was a lot of fighting and a lot of dysfunction in our family. And I was graduating high school when I was 16 years old. And my parents had sold the family home as part of the divorce. And there was really nowhere to go because I had kind of sailed through high school without having to study or work hard at it. I knew I had to work in order to find a place to live because I didn't have a home to live in. I was 16 without a home. I knew that I had to, you know, go and kind of take care of myself. And I also was very afraid that I wouldn't do well at university, Tony. I was really nervous about it. I, I didn't have good study habits. I didn't think I could pass. I didn't have that kind of instilled belief in my intelligence. 
I, my dad was just mortified with me because he has a PhD in education and my sisters had degrees in education and my stepmother at the time by then had a, a PhD in education. So they were all educators. He, he kept saying, you have to go to university. You'll never make anything of yourself if you don't. Between the fear of going to school and failing and then the desire to kind of put a roof over my head and the need, that was at 16. And then at 19, I fell in love. And I got married uh, and started to have children. So my life completely changed because all I really wanted to do was be a mother. I didn't want to be an entrepreneur. Well, you talk very openly about struggling with mental health through your life. Did you sense that was going to be a battle even back then or was that later on? It didn't really happen until later on. It, it happened more for me in my 40s, um, late 40s. I hadn't had any anxiety. In fact, I was one of those people that was probably a little bit unforgiving to people who suffered from anxiety. You know, I didn't understand I just, you know, pick yourself up, go, go do it. You know, what's, you know, like, it can't be that bad. Your life's so good. How could you possibly have anxiety? And so I was not as sympathetic as I should have been. And then when it struck me, Tony, it was just, first, I, I suffered from depression because I went through a really bad divorce. Couldn't really drag myself out of bed. I, I didn't know what was going on with me. And, and then between the struggles of that and, and just life in general, I started to experience anxiety. What price do you think you personally paid and what price did your children pay seeing their mother trying to make the next day happen? I'd like to believe I taught my children the importance of hard work and the importance of commitment to family and the importance of never giving up. So I believe they witnessed my efforts and I think that was helpful to them. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. This is Chatter That Matters presented by RBC. When we come back, I chat with Arlena about her first book, Persuasion. What persuaded her to write it and what lessons in life does it offer you? My efforts often took me away from them. You know, it's it's hard when you're the kid of a divorced parent and that parent is trying to build a business. It's hard. So I took my kids to work with me a lot. They came to the office with me a lot. When I was building the agency in the early days, they were there on the weekends and at nights with me. You know, they used to think riding that, we used to have one of those trolley things to push paper, you know, those things that kind of, you had to right. move boxes. They'd ride on that as, you know, for fun. And we'd order pizza in and, and that was dinner. And they talk about it. They, they would say to me now, mom used to talk about work all the time. And so now I don't talk about work all the time. And now they're talking about work all the time. So it does come full circle. They, they do come back at you. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. My special guest is Arlene Dickinson, dragon extraordinaire, one of the people I admire most. Arlene, what motivated you to write Persuasion? It's a very personal book. I, I you know, I haven't been on, I was at that time, I'd been on the show for a number of years and I, I was starting to do a lot of public speaking, Tony, and, and people were, I was getting inundated with letters and emails and, and people wanting to talk to me and get coached by me or mentored by me. And I knew I couldn't possibly do it all. And I, in particular, I was hearing from a lot of women who were struggling with trying to find their place in the business world and trying to understand how to navigate the personal and professional side of being an entrepreneur and, and, and the messiness of that as, as also while being a, a female. And it struck me that the best way for me to try and reach a bigger audience was to write a book about a persuasion. And, and, and this came out of the notion, you know, we're both in the marketing industry, Tony, you know how sometimes people can see marketing as a very um, 
the pursuit of evil, you know, like it's manipulative. It's, it's, it's all about trying to get somebody to do something they don't want to do. And I didn't like that. I didn't like that business was perceived as, you know, it was a dog eat dog world and you had to be, you know, kind of ruthless and, and unfeeling in order to succeed. And that marketing was this, you know, world where it was all about kind of manipulating things. And so I, I wanted to write about ethical persuasion that you, you can actually build a business and do things in an ethical way. You, you can persuade somebody to do something that you can both win at, you know, it doesn't have to be a win-lose. It could be a win-win. And so the book came from a place and a desire to share the story so that people didn't feel so alone and that, so they could understand that there is a blueprint and there's, there is a way forward that they could follow perhaps themselves. And I get that. And I get as a dragon, that's something that people would be very eager to hear. But you also talked about things like a marriage in trouble, running into an affair, put yourself outside of a community that you valued, the Mormon church and all that came with it. I mean, that's that's quite risky, isn't it? When they're thinking you are this, you know, I've seen you on stage, you're a phenomenal speaker and you walk on stage and people are so excited. But that book showed the warts of Arlene as well your confidence, your belief in yourself, and your ability to succeed in life. This is on you. This is I mean, what gave you the courage, especially that early in building your brand, to offer that to people? And what were you hoping they would get from it? I don't think I have the energy to show up as somebody different than who I am. And, you know, one of the things that TV taught me is that a, a lot of people want to be seen as somebody different than who, when the lights and the cameras are off than they actually are. And for me, the easiest thing in life was to just be true to who I was and not have to spend the energy and time trying to pretend I was somebody else. And then it also came from a place of kind of still wake up every day, shocked that I'm where I am because I, I am who I am. And, and, and realizing that in vulnerability, and this is, it's, I don't want to say something trite at all, but this is very true. It's a truism that in vulnerability, you gain strength. That when you talk about these things that have impacted you, not only do people relate more to you, but you actually feel free. You actually feel less burdened by trying to pretend you're something you're not, or that you haven't struggled in some way, or that you're somehow perfect. And so I started just to talk about it. And I, it's funny, Tony, I, I found it easier to talk on a stage in front of thousands of people than I did in an intimate conversation with a one-on-one -on -one with a person. I found it easier because I was in control of the conversation. I could talk about it and put it out there, but then I didn't have to, you know, kind of unravel it and, and analyze it with anyone else. As I'm making you do right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I love a quote when you say that you never buy into this concept, well, if I can do it, anyone can Tell us why you, you feel that, because that's one of the easiest. Well, if I do it, you can do it too. And you're opposed to that. Why? Because I don't think it's true. I think we all have different gifts and different skill sets and different talents. And there's things that, you know, uh, there's things that I can't do. I, I will never be a supermodel. I may want to be a supermodel, but I will never be a supermodel. There's physically, I will never be one. There's a whole bunch of reasons I won't. Um, so if they can do it, doesn't mean I can do it, you know, like that's, a, it's, there's certain things I I'll never be a brain surgeon. I've got a little bit of a tremor in my right hand that I've had for decades. I can't be a brain surgeon. So just cause I want to be, doesn't mean I can be. And, and, and I think the notion of, if I can do it, you can do it says if hard work gets you anywhere, um, hard work can get you what you want to accomplish, but it can't make you something that you are not able to be. We're all good at something. 
we can't, you know, and there's lots of room for all of us at the, at the top. There's, there's the room for everybody. Don't try and be what somebody else is, I guess. So let, let me build on this concept. There's room for everybody. You joined Dragon's Den, I believe, in his second year. Yeah. And Kevin O'Leary was trying to run the table and be the dragon, the personality. How did you make room for yourself and over time, in fact, win over the audience? There's always room for a villain and a, and a, and a, and a <laughs> I guess, a heroine in every story, right? And for me, I'm a bit of a justice warrior, Tony. And so I, I couldn't help myself, you know, when, when somebody would put out an opinion that I felt didn't matter which of the dragons that I felt really opposed to just because from a, a moral, ethical, kind of just a treatment of humans perspective, I, I couldn't not say anything. The way you've done business for the past 25 years, because you're the old way of doing business. And if we don't start thinking about stuff like this, shame on us. Kumbaya, We're bad business people. Kumbaya. It's not write, kumbaya. It's good write business. Write your check, honey. It's good business. Write your check. I'm thinking about it. No, and so it was It was an accidental um, clash of personalities that turned into, I think, a microcosm of what the business world is is like. There are different types of people out there that you can do business with. And I never thought of myself as the only woman on stage. I only thought of myself as myself on stage. And, and so I was unafraid to have the debate. I, I never felt intimidated by it. I never was afraid of it. I, I, I could give it out as well as I could take it, I think. <laughs> I don't know. It's quite, I don't know if the word is ironic, but the girl that was scared to go to university that hid in books because she felt she was always outmatched is now the person on television, not afraid to give her opinion. That's quite a, that's quite a, a journey that happened in quite a short time. From a business professional perspective, and you'll, uh, you'll appreciate this a lot. I used to be so intimidated when I would go to like ICA meetings and for people who are listening to your podcast, which is the Institute of Canadian Advertising Agencies. I used to go to those meetings and I'd feel so intimidated by people. I'd, I'd feel like I didn't belong there. I usually was the only female. Everybody was running, you know, multinational shops and I'd sit there and think, oh, I, you know, I don't know anything. And then it took, and then after a while I started thinking, wait a minute, I'm running my own shop just like you. I'm an independent. I, I've done stuff they have haven't done. Like I have a different perspective and it's okay that it's not their perspective just because they are hired guns for big companies doesn't mean that they're smarter than me. And it took me some time to really kind of get comfortable with that, which was this notion that we all have something to bring to the table. And when you talk about kind of I am still incredibly insecure when it comes to personal things. Like I am so insecure. I, I'm insecure about my body shape, my, my, the way I look, the, the way I, all of that stuff, but professionally I'm incredibly secure. I know what I know and I know what I don't know. And I'm not afraid to, and it's, it's an odd thing. I'm not afraid to stand up, but don't put me in a social setting where I've got to walk into a room and everybody's eyes are going to turn towards me. Cause I've been just like, Oh, what? Like hide. And just so everybody listening, Arlene and I were in the same industry. And when I first heard her name and this shop and who are these people, and then the client looked me in the eye and said, this company has purpose. This company understands social justice. That was 15 years before. It is now the DNA of being a great advertising. So you, were, you were so far ahead of your time with what you were doing and so successful at what you did. You might've been intimidated walking in the rooms, but I think you probably intimidated a lot more people than you imagined. Hi, this is Tony Chapman. Download Chatter That Matters wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Arlene Dickinson shares more stories from The Den and excerpts from her second book, All In. 
Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. Small business owners are the heart of our economy, and it's our collective interest to keep them beating strong. Small Business Matters to RBC, and a big shout out for their Small Business Navigator portal that points the way to practical resources, money-saving offers, and financial advice. Find out more at rbc.com slash navigator. This is on you. This is not on anyone else. And when we tell ourselves we will fail, when we look at others and think they're better than we are, when we compare ourselves to the norm, we end up harming our own opportunity. When you take the importance of time and you multiply it by courage and perseverance of the human spirit, your own spirit, you will find that you are capable of doing anything. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. I'm chatting with Arlene Dickinson, author, venture capitalist, entrepreneur, and dragon. So Arlene, your next book is titled All In. And I like the picture in this book. You're looking confident. You're more of a teacher, someone willing to give back. And I love the fact there's so much honesty in this book that you really talk about there's a wake up to becoming an entrepreneur. And that means you might sacrifice a lot of things that you're going to regret down the road, which is your personal life, your relationships with people. Because when you go all in, there's very little left. Tell us a little bit more about what you were hoping to get across with this book. Because I I just found it such a refreshing read. Tony, that book was uh, all about the journey of entrepreneurialism being such, everybody talks about uh, how lonely it can be at the top, but as an entrepreneur, it's not just about being lonely at the top. It's about kind of reconciling who you are as a human and, and how that shows up with everybody else in your life. And for me, entrepreneurialism is, it's like being, when people say, well, you know, at five o'clock, you should turn it off. You should just put it away. Well, entrepreneurs are like, it's who we are. We, we can't just put it away at five o'clock and we get up every day and we go to sleep every day and we wake up in the middle of the night every day as entrepreneurs. It's like, it's like basically saying, it'd be like saying to an athlete, you know, at five o'clock, stop being an athlete. Well, they're going to look at you like what, or an artist, you know, entrepreneurs are the same. And so I wanted a book that talked about the messiness of how your person, who you are, both personally and professionally, is one thing, and I wanted to to normalize this this type of individual so that they didn't feel like they were outcast and somehow like everybody else is like they were alone. But there was actually this notion of this tribe of entrepreneurs and who we are and how we think and and how we operate and talk about how hard we can be on our relationships as entrepreneurs, how hard we can be on ourselves, how, how, um, how difficult a journey it is. And I, I wanted to, it, cause we are all in like there, there is no half measure when you're an entrepreneur. You know, what I recommend for people out there that are either entrepreneurs or an extension of an entrepreneur, you know, relationships, family and stuff. I think it's an incredible book to read because as you said, you do get all in and it's almost impossible to pull away. And people are trying to tell you something really important. Your brain's wiring something else. And I think that it's an important for people to recognize. And I, th- I think at times being an entrepreneur is a bit of an addiction as well. I love it. I, I think a true, and I didn't know I was an entrepreneur until I was 31. I really, and I didn't really become entrepreneurial, Tony, until I was in my fifties. 
like I thought I was an entrepreneur, but I wasn't truly an entrepreneur. Like I was running a business. Yes, I was investing, but I really wasn't taking that big risk that's associated with entrepreneurialism in the true sense of the word. And I didn't do that until I started Venture Park and created the fund and did all the, you know, like wanted to reshape the way marketing works in the context of helping business. That's when I became a true entrepreneur. Did the publishers challenge you when you were writing this? Because the layout would be, you know, Tales from the Dragon or, you know, you could have just, you could have just sort of, I don't know, fed anything in and they would have been a bestseller. But did they challenge you? Because this was, again, Arlene being very personal about what matters as opposed to being what might have been quite exploitive because you just happened to be one of the most uh, well-known celebrities now in Canada. All in was there was a lot of stories that I used in interviewing other entrepreneurs to see what their journey was like. And in hindsight, I probably would have written that book a little differently because the challenge is, is that every entrepreneur has a different version of what it means to them. And I wasn't, I'm not sure I, I had the thread the same and, and the, and the publishers did want me to have the other stories in there. So I'm not sure. I, I, the, I honestly, um, Harper Collins has been an amazing publisher to work with that. Uh, the editors have been f- phenomenal. They've, they always pushed me to, you know, kind of put myself out there, but in a, in a way that I was comfortable with. So I, I, I think it's, it's always a journey of mutual respect and mutual kind of push pull. And I think writing a book is, it is so personal. You leave a lot on the page. That's for sure. You talk about the three R's of an entrepreneur, resilience, roadblocks, and rejection. But what you're really saying is resilience is key. There's not, they're not equal footing. Tell me why resilience is such uh, an important attribute if you're trying to push forward with an idea or a venture? Well, we talk a lot about persistence and tenacity, but resilience is that iron will that lets you kind of get past your mistakes. And to me, it's that ability to take the challenges and not internalize them to the point that they actually cripple you. And so resilience is about saying, okay, you know, that was hard and that was difficult but what can I do with it next? How do I come out of that? I mean, the flood in Calgary that I experienced where I almost put my business out of business um, required resilience to rebirth the organization. And it's not as you, as you've done yourself, you know, when you, when you have to reinvent your businesses, when you have to go through things personally, or there's divorce, whether it's illness, whether it's a death in the family, whether it's loss of a job, all of these things are challenges that we get in life and the resilience is the ability to take them and not let them stop you, but let them be part of your learning as a human. And this, I think, is something we sometimes forget that we, we start our next part of our journey better off because of experience, not worse off because of it. Do you, do you think that that's the moments that you do reinvent? I remember when I, I lost control of my agency, I sold it to a British firm, they went bankrupt. I was suddenly on the sidelines. They had a great agency, but I couldn't physically get in the door. And I had to reinvent myself working out of a friend's art studio, had two phones, two phone lines. I remember now those days as just being exhilarating. I probably were awful then. I was fearing paying my mortgage and everything else that comes with it. But do you think that when you look back at your career as an entrepreneur or someone that's made things happen, it's the points where you're at the darkest and somehow find a way to climb into the light is what you're going to remember more than just when you were in the spotlight. Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. I think it's at those moments that you find what you're made of, that you, that you start to understand meaning 
versus doing, you know, um, you can do things every day and you can put your, you know, one foot in front of the other and work hard and, and have no purpose. And, and then when something bad happens, you're kind of left with really not much, um, or you can kind of live your life on purpose and learning. I, I think the best lessons I've ever had have been the ones that have felt impossible at the time. And I keep coming back to it, whether it's divorces or whether it was almost losing the business or whether it was, you know, there's, there's been a lot, Tony, and, but it's life. You know, I, I, I actually was tweeting today that, you know, I'll be turning, I'm turning 65 in October and I'm so excited about it. I'm so happy to be here and to be able to look back and go, yeah, I look at those things that, I, and, and the worst times are actually the times where I actually bettered myself um, personally and became a better human as a result of them. So yeah, nothing like experience and time to make you understand what you just said. Hi, this is Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters. My special guest is Arlene Dickinson, Dragon Extraordinaire. We come back, Arlene talks about her third book, Reinvention, and why her lessons apply to you. I'm going to do this because if I don't do it now, when will I do it? If I don't go now, when am I going to go? And I've always lived with the belief that you should not live a life of, full of regrets, looking back and saying, I wish I had a, I wish I had done that. Because I knew that the worst thing that could happen was that I would fail. I was okay with that. I was okay with failing. I was okay with trying and not letting it happen, but I wasn't gonna be okay with not trying. And I think that's how you turn the improbable into the possible by asking yourself, are you gonna look back one day and say, I wish I had? And we all do that. Even today, people will look back on this pandemic and say, I wish I'd worked out the last year. At 24 years old, I had three children and no money, and I did a business. That's so amazing. don't ever say to somebody, yeah. you need to try it yourself. You don't know what somebody has done. I'm not judging I, you by your age yeah, or no, that you're I a year that. out of university. I'm judging you solely on your business. Yeah. Okay? I deserve a little more credibility than what you're giving I'm me. giving you full credit for the social stuff. I'm not giving you full credit for the business. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. My guest today is Arlene Dickinson. Arlene, you wrote Reinvention, Changing Your Life and Career in 2019. But I have to be honest, when I first picked up your book, I was surprised by the picture you chose. You are stunning. Your press photos, you're one of the most, you're just, I'm, I'm not even know if you're allowed to say it anymore, but you are a beautiful woman. And in that picture, you look tired. You look like there was no gas left in the tank. Now, I know you're in control of your brand. Why did you pick that picture? I had just come off of, of a reinvention of, of a very difficult time uh, in my journey. And what I wanted to demonstrate in that picture is, was not the glamour, but was that it is about being able to look at yourself and see yourself. And, and that picture was really about kind of me being raw, you know, not a lot of makeup, not, you know, dress fancy. There are moments in time where we have to just be true to who we are. And so I just wanted it to be real, Tony. I, I think it was just the right picture for the book. So somebody that reviewed your book, this is what they said about you. At 57, Arlene Dickinson's life was turned upside down. Her company was on the brink of disaster. Her sense of herself as a strong, confident leader was in tatters. She was overwhelmed by feelings of loss, fear, and shame. 
Yet five years later, her business is booming. She's never been happier or more excited about the future. And she's raised tens of millions of dollars and built a whole ecosystem to help other entrepreneurs. How did you find your way back at that age? I mean, you've kind of almost at a point where I've set myself up for life and now you have to re- reinvent yourself. What lessons can you offer people? Because there's a lot of people listening, maybe you're out of a job at age 50 that they weren't planning or having to rethink what they're going to do the rest of their life. I never thought about it in terms of my age. I thought about it in terms of what I wanted to accomplish. And so I had for years tempered my ambition. I I had for years wanted to do something so much bigger than I was doing, but I kept hearing other people's voices telling me I couldn't. And and maybe it was my age um, without thinking about it at the time, but maybe it was the stage in my life where I went, I'm going to do this because if I don't do it now, when will I do it? If I don't go now, when am I going to go? And I've always lived with the belief that you should not live a life of full of regrets, looking back and saying, I wish I had a, I wish I had done that because I knew that the worst thing that could happen was that I would fail. I was okay with that. I was okay with failing. I was okay with trying and not letting it happen, but I wasn't going to be okay with not trying. So we all, all the time are reassessing ourselves in terms of why didn't I work out today? And then we have this, I'll I'll do it tomorrow. And then the tomorrow comes, you don't do it again. So this is a life of regret where we're constantly telling ourselves we will one day. And then we look back and before we know it, one day has passed. I would say to everybody, ask yourself if the worst thing that could happen is you will fail. That is going to be far better than the worst thing happening that you didn't even try. You had a quote recently in LinkedIn. Success is not measured by what you accomplish, but by the oppositions you've encountered and the courage with which you have maintained the struggle against overwhelming odds. We've touched on that quite a bit today, but it's a powerful quote. I feel successful in having lived a life that is full. And I feel successful in having lived a life with purpose, but I still get up every day and think, I should do more. I I should do more. What else can I do to help? You know, like I'm not doing enough to help community and people. And and I I, I think it's age now that I'm starting to turn to philanthropy more and thinking about legacy and wanting to make sure I leave a mark and realizing that, you know, life is fleeting. All of these things go through my head. So success is, I think, leaving a mark, leaving the world better than you found it. I do a lot of my giving these days on like GoFundMe sites and places where, you know, like where you don't let tax receipts, but you're trying to, you you can help people who have these really meaningful things that they're trying to do. I've given more quietly to families in need and things like that than I have to big organizational charities. And I hope you see somebody who continues to enjoy life and, and wants to, and loves being a Canadian and is honor to participate um, and wants to stay relevant as I become less relevant because I want to make room for others. One of the things that you and I and everybody who's older has an obligation to do is, is make room and make room for the next generation of successful people and the next generation of people that are going to change and to leave a legacy through, as you said, mentoring and coaching. On top of everything you're doing, you decided to do a podcast called Reinvention. Uh, extension, I guess, from your book in some ways. What are you hoping audiences will get from listening? Well, thanks for that, Tony. That podcast is so unstructured. It's 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 similar to what you do. I, I just wanted to have conversations with interesting Canadians and talk about how they had reinvented themselves. And I've talked to some such great people, like people who have made me cry talking to them. They, they've been so 
honest, um, it's helped me so much. So I always feel like I'm getting more than I'm giving, you know, like I listen to them, I go, wow, you I've just learned so much from this person. And reinvention was to try and help other people figure, realize that just because somebody looks successful doesn't mean they haven't had to go through the reinvention in their own life and figure out how to manage uh, and navigate through bad times. Arlene, I always end my podcast with the three things I've learned. What your dad gave you, and we just recently talked about, uh, you're responsible for yourself. Society doesn't owe you, you owe society. And I think if that was embodied in more people, not only would Canada be the greatest country in the world, but maybe Canadians could do a big part in helping solve some of the biggest problems. I think the second thing is when you talked about resilience and resilience is just your permission to fail because that resilience is really where you learn. And I think the most important thing is you as a human being saying, I can't pretend to be who I'm not. The flaws, the warts, looking tired one day, looking glamorous the other, that's just Arlene Dickinson. And for that, You matter so much, not just to me, but for everybody that absolutely adores you in Canada and around the world. So thank you for joining me in Chatter That Matters. Thanks, Tony. Um, I always like to say that we should all reserve the right to get smarter. When we reserve the right to get smarter, we have a lifelong desire to learn and we can always get better as humans. And I, I appreciate you very much. I love this podcast. Thank you so much for those kind, kind words. And um, as I said, huge fan of you. So thank you. Joining me now is Sharia Bernie. If you're a fan of the podcast, you know that I've had her on before. She's an incredibly talented banker with RBC, Vice President of Commercial Services. Thanks for joining me again. Thank you very much for having me, Tony. It's great to be here. Arlene was very open and honest and actually quite raw in the interview when she talked about finding herself in her 20s as a single mom, didn't have a lot of education, very little prospects. And a year later, she she became an entrepreneur. And I have to imagine a lot of people listening right now are looking for a major reset, really rethinking what they want to do with their life. How would you approach someone like RBC, knowing that you're vulnerable in some areas because you don't have all the answers, but at the same time, you have this excitement or energy about wanting to do something different? Well, I think that, uh, you know, that those are the relationships of trust that we, we are hoping to build with women entrepreneurs and with Canadians, right? So, you know, uh, I, we always tell our clients, come to us early, be transparent, tell us kind of where you're going and what you're thinking. Because, uh, you know, a lot of times entrepreneurs come to the table and they have a very specific idea for the kind of support they need. But in a lot of cases, they may not even realize the ways their bank can support them. You know, we've got what we call our beyond banking solutions that can help entrepreneurs with various things, whether it's incorporating a business or, you know, simplifying their payroll. And there's so many different elements that we bring to the table. And that's a big focus for RBC is to bring in these value added solutions that go just beyond the the core sort of banking function. So, you know, we would say definitely there's a lot of people kind of rethinking their businesses. There's a lot of people thinking differently about where they want to go. You know, lots of businesses have pivoted during the pandemic. so my advice just would be to, to you know, come to us and have an honest conversation. Is that your role at RBC to help with the choreography so that people know they're seeking the right advice from the right people at the right time? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the big, uh, big roles that our commercial account managers play at RBC. Our business and commercial account managers is being that quarterback and helping the business owner navigate all the resources that are available to them. So, you know, yes, we've got a lot of different platforms. We have a lot of different partners that we provide, but every business owner would have a dedicated 
banker, like a relationship manager who kind of helps make sense of it all and bring the right partners to the table. Maria Bernie, you have such a passion for women entrepreneurs, and I thank you so much for being part of the Arlene Dickinson episode, and I hope I can call on you again. Absolutely. No, thank you for having me, uh, Tony. It's always a pleasure, and uh, you're doing some really good work in helping women entrepreneurs achieve access to opportunities. So thank you for doing that. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.